you got a Bible with you this morning, open to the book of 1 Timothy. That's where we're going to be today. A couple of things I want to catch you up to speed on uh, before we jump into the Word together this morning. Um, if you missed the announcements when you came in, today is Review. Review is an opportunity for us to gather uh, with guests who've been a part of us for a while and just give you a rundown of who we are as a church, why we're here, what we believe, uh, what God's doing in our midst. And so we want to invite you to that time. Even if you didn't register uh, in advance, still come. Um, I'll give up my sandwich for you, uh, and we can just have a good time talking about who we are as a church and where we're headed. Um, also, I want to draw your attention to the back of the room. Back there, there is a, uh, a booth set up for Operation Christmas Child that we as a church will participate in this fall. We'll be collecting shoe boxes to send through Samaritan's Purse to locations around the globe uh, to serve those children who are in very economically depressed, war-torn, oftentimes disease-ridden areas of the world. And so uh, Brian and Amber Harvey have done a great job of setting that up. They can be, they'll be back there after the service to answer questions you might have about that. So stop by the booth, pick up some boxes, fill them up. November 4th is the deadline to bring them here to church. And we'll talk more about that this fall as it continues to roll forward. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we are this morning. Also, if you are a guest with us, uh, you should have gotten one of these when you came in. Uh, inside of that is a little tear-off panel uh, where you can uh, submit prayer requests to us if there are things that we can pray with you or for you about as a church. It would be our honor to do that. Uh, there's also a place for a little guest information on that tear-off panel, so you can tear that off and drop it in the box at the kiosk on your way out or at the information desk at the front of the building. They'd love to take that from you there as well, just so we can communicate with you, give you some information about who we are as a church, and answer any questions that you might have as you seek to discern whether or not this is a place that God has for you to plug in. So this morning, we continue and conclude this little mini-series of messages entitled Deacons. Uh, deacons from 1 Timothy chapter 3. One of the things I said at the outset of this series is that oftentimes in church we come looking for how does the Bible speak to my personal life and that is a very viable and real application that we look for in the scriptures of what God is God saying to me. But oftentimes I think we miss what God is saying to us as a church body. And so that's what we've been doing over these couple, couple of weeks is trying to think about how do we organize internally as a church to be effective in ministry as God's called us, planted us, and placed us here. And so as we look at this issue of deacons this morning, on the heels of last week, I'll catch you up if you missed it and didn't catch the podcast. Last week what we said, uh, very basically was this, is that as in Acts chapter 6, we looked at that text and we saw that deacons are what we call task-specific servants. Task-specific servants who serve the physical and financial or fiscal needs of the body. And they do so in a way that works toward unity of the body by absorbing shock because every church hits rough patches in their history. And so deacons are there to help absorb some of that shock as they give attention to practical matters in the life of the body, but also to afford justice because they don't play favorites. They're not brokering for one crowd over another. Right? They have the unity of the entire body in scope as they do the work God's called them to do. And then third, they also support the ministry of the Word, so equal attention can be given to the preaching ministry of the church and the practical ministries of the church, so that neither one of those things must be neglected to give attention to the other. So deacons are task-specific servants. And throughout the New Testament, what you see is that in the, bo in, in, in the body of Christ, in the local church, that Paul envisions each church having a plurality of elders and a plurality of deacons. A plurality of elders and a plurality of deacons. And we said last week, listen, these are not two branches of government. 
Okay? And so it's not like, like, that's not how we roll, right, in the Bible. So it's not like the lead pastor is the president, and then you got the senate, who are the elders, and the house of representatives, who are the deacons. This is not how it works, right? As a lead pastor in this church, I am one among our elders, Okay? So I'm not over our elders, I'm among our elders, and so we make decisions together, we vote on things together, we deliberate together. In fact, just to be real transparent, there have been times in the last year where I've lost in those conversations and discussions, just as we've talked through matters and issues. And I told them very early on, whenever I arrived here, that if I always get my way, then something's wrong. Right? And that's just the reality of us being interrelated as one among others. So I'm, it's not that way. I'm not the president and they're the senate and then the deacons are the house of representatives. Because the deacons are not a board that meet together to deliberate and make decisions. But they are servants that are equipped and empowered, then deployed to do ministry and facilitate that in the life of the body. That's how deacons function. And that's what we envision them functioning like in the life of Redeemer. And so as we look at that issue, this, this, uh, on the heels of that, of, of defining what deacons are, task-specific servants, right? Elders, they help shape the theological vision of a church through preaching, teaching, shepherding, guiding, counseling oftentimes. Deacons, they engage in the practical execution of ministry in the church through organizing, administrating, facilitating teams of people to accomplish practical ministry and its expressions as it flows in the life of a body. But Paul's also very clear that there are certain things that qualify individuals to serve in that kind of capacity in the life of the church. He didn't leave, he gave us a job description, but also gave us requirements for that job description God does in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So look there with us, if you don't have it, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together. 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now listen, Paul's riding into a situation in Ephesus to a young pastor named Timothy as he addresses these issues. And what's going on in Ephesus is this, is that there have been false teachers and former leaders who had been in the church, who had now left the church, and they had often led others astray while they were in the church from Christ and a relationship and faithfulness to Him and sound doctrine. And so when Paul speaks about leaders in the early church, both the office of elder and the office of deacon, he gives qualifications. And most of those qualifications turn on the character of those individuals who are serving in that office. On the character of those individuals. And so the the majority of the time that we spend this morning is going to be unpacking the character of a deacon. But before we get to what does positively qualify someone to serve as a deacon, let's talk about what does not disqualify someone for serving as a deacon, right? And as elders, as we've discussed this matter and studied this matter, what we believe is that gender does not disqualify someone from serving as a deacon in the life of Jesus' church. 
And this issue for me really turns on this text that we just read this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, particularly in verse 11. If you've got the ESV translation, which is the one I preach from on Sunday morning, it, they render it this way. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. The NIV says it this way. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect. But in both of those translations, in both the NIV and the ESV, they contain a marginal note. You're like, what is that? It's like a footnote, right? So there's probably like a little number, little two or three or four or letter or number or asterisk there next to that statement. And then down in the bottom, it likely says, wives or women. Wives or women. Because the word that Paul uses there can, in some contexts, mean wives. In other contexts, it could just mean generally women. And so as Paul's writing, you, 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 so the, the text you can understand it in one of two ways. Either Paul is talking about the wives of deacons who are serving in the body of the church as task-specific servants, or he's talking about women who served as deacons in the life of the local congregation. To get their wives in the English translation, you need to supply the word there because it's not there in the Greek. Did you follow that? You got to supply the word there because it's not there in the original language. And so literally translated, the original language would read women likewise. And also that word likewise seems to be another sequence in this list that Paul's giving as he starts off with elders in verse 1 of chapter 3, then likewise deacons in chapter, verse 8 of chapter 3, and then likewise women who are serving as what would be called deaconesses in the early church. You also see evidence of this in the Bible. If you turn to Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul writes about a deaconess, the words actually there in the New Testament language, uh, called Phoebe, who is serving there in the church. Right? And so you see biblical examples of this. You see extra-biblical examples of women who are serving the body as deacons, exercising their gifts as task-specific servants, executing practical ministry in the life of the body. Now, this is different than what you might find in most Baptist churches who have a single pastor and then a board of deacons who basically function as elders running and ruling the church, right? But we have a plurality of elders who we believe are the men that God has appointed to this task of guiding, shepherding, leading, and teaching and then we're looking and aiming to install a plurality of deacons, whether men or women, who can exercise their gifts to serve the body in task-specific ways as they organize, administrate, and facilitate ministry. So gender for us is not a disqualifier as it is in some places. But positively, let's talk about the character that Paul says must be present in the life of a deacon. First of all, he gives a pretty, pretty significant list. We're going to take them one by one. First of all, he says they've got to be tested. That's where I want to start in the middle of the qualifications. Tested. In verse 10, that's what he says. Listen to what he says. And let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Listen, some of you know much more about this than I do, and so I would defer to your insight. But in, material science, in the material sciences, there's such thing as what's, what's called fatigue testing. Civil engineers probably go through this process quite frequently as they build structures. They look to build bridges. They do fatigue testing. Right? Because fatigue testing is this. Basically, it's saying you're going to put a load on something over and over and over and over again. And over the course of time, if that material is not ready to bear that load, 
as it's placed on and off and on and off, it can begin to develop small stress cracks in it. And over time, those small stress cracks continue to, to manifest themselves and spread until they get to a point in the process where they just create, creates complete failure. And so there's fatigue testing that's done on the materials that are going to be used to support things like semis driving across bridges to know what their, what their, what their tensile strength, what their breaking point is, and how much fatigue they're able to bear. Because you don't want them collapsing and with cars piled up on top of them. Right? And listen, for a deacon in the life of a church, their life is going to be loaded with ministry responsibility. And so Paul says, let them be tested first to discern whether or not they're able to bear the load that you would place on their life as they serve in these various aspects of ministry. Because serving, while we might say, yes, we want to rejoice in that, serving is a joy. Anybody else find serving to be a joy? I hope you do. Nobody's raising your hand. But I, I hope you do. I hope service is a joy to you. I hope exercising your gifts is a joy to you. That you wake up on Sunday morning and say, I want to serve the body. You wake up on Thursday morning and say, I want to serve the body. Exercise my gifts in the way that God has wired me. But serving is also at times a very real test. And anybody who's served in, for a long time in one place knows that it can be a significant test. And it can be fatiguing at times. It can test the depths of your love. It can test the lengths of your patience. It can test the quality of your endurance and even the permanence of your joy. So while serving brings great rewards, absolutely brings great rewards, it's sometimes those rewards are gift-wrapped in very trying situations. You ever found that to be true? Very difficult hardships. See, those who lovingly serve others, sometimes they end up feeling kind of like crash test dummies, right? They strap me into the seat, pull the lever, and, and basically what you're trying to discover is the heat, force, and pain tolerance of some kind of new product. That's how serving feels sometimes. And so it's not surprising that Paul should say to Timothy and the church to find deacons who will be tested first, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Right? Is their life able to bear the load that responsibility you're going to place on top of them in that task-specific area of service, of organizing, facilitating, and administrating ministry in such a way that it works for the unity of the body and supports the preaching of God's Word? There's a load that's laid on their life in that. Now Paul says, if they're blameless, let them serve. Now listen, that word blameless doesn't mean perfect. Because there are no perfect people. I, I am not you, you have, those of you who have been here a long time, you know I am not perfect. Right? There are no perfect people, right? And there's nobody on the face of the earth who can step up to the tee box, right? Set the ball on the tee, take the driver in their hand, and bring it back, and then rip it straight down the fairway. I mean, just dead center every single time, right? There's nobody who can do that. Even the guys on playing today on the tour in the BMW Golf Championship Playoff thingamajiggy, right? Even those guys cannot rip it down the middle every single time. Oftentimes it ends up on the right-hand side of the fairway, the left-hand side of the fairway. But there's a difference between those guys who end up on the fairway or in the trees or in a bunker or in a water hazard and those guys like me who stand up on the tee and people in the houses all around are like, bringing their kids inside, bringing their dogs inside, right? Rolling down the armor-plated shutters on their windows, right? Bunkering down and just bracing for impact. There's a difference, 
right? When Paul says blameless, he's not talking about perfect, striping the sin of the fairway every time. What he's saying is people should not be fearful of the ways in which you're going to serve as you enter into that office. But he says in order to know that, they have to be tested first. Tested in real life situations. Tested in real life serving opportunities because they're going to be deployed in situations that are difficult, sometimes very serious situations. So they have to be tested. So here's a few questions, just real practically. And some of this, I just want to be clear on the outset. It's not all original content to me. One person who was really helpful for me as I put this message together in particular is another pastor by the name of Fibiti Anabwile. Say that name three times really fast and get a little tongue-tied. Um, but he asked a series of questions, and I want to give them to you this morning, and each, each point that we kind of work through. So, tested. Is, the, is this prospective deacon a mature and growing Christian? Some of that may be measured over time, but time is not always a predictor of maturity. Some of you are like, I know. I have kids in their 20s. It's not always a predictor of maturity. Okay? Um, are they a mature and growing Christian? Are they, have they been tested to some degree? Has they been seasoned? Now, there's no magical formula for the number of years you have to be a Christian or the number of time you have to have spent in a church in order to be installed into that office and serve in that kind of capacity. But the question is, are the fruit of the Spirit evident in their life? Are they growing into Christ's likeness and contributing to the growth of others? So that as Paul envisions in Ephesians 4, we all might grow up in Christ. Right? Is they a mature and growing believer? Second, do, do they show competence in their areas of service? Now it's very important to notice, Paul doesn't give a list of competencies, he gives a list of character qualities, but it's also important that the person be able to do what we're tasking them to do. But I will say this, it's better to have someone with average competencies and high character than someone with high competencies and average to below average character. Third, is there anything that disqualifies a prospective deacon from serving, whether in their, it, particularly in their character? Do they reveal serious deficiencies? And then fourth, is the congregation supportive of the potential deacon entering the office? Listen, there, is n- there are few things more empowering than to know that the church is behind you and affirms you as you step into that area of service. Because there will be difficult days. There will be hardships that you have to face. There will be sticky situations that you will be involved in. And as the testing serves to affirm the person's gifting and character, then that, that endorsement of the church being behind them saying, yes, we believe God has gifted you. We believe God's called you. And we are with you and behind you as you step into that area of service. Paul says tested. Second of all, he says deacons must be dignified. Dignified. In order for an individual to serve, the deacon must possess honorable character. That's what that word means. To be dignified means there's somebody worthy of honor, somebody worthy of emulation. Right? Somebody you want to hold up and say, listen, model and pattern your life after them. As Paul would even say at one point, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So that person would be honorable in their character, dignified in their conduct, in the way they handle themselves and do things. And so what kind of character does that look like? What does that look like in the way it presses itself out practically in people's lives? First of all, Paul says, it must be consistent in speech. It must be consistent in speech. In verse 8, we're told that deacons must not be double-tongued. Double-tongued. In other words, they must not be two-faced or indulging in double-talk in various contexts. And they can do that in one of two ways. They can 
manifests itself in one of two ways. First, they may say one thing to one person, another thing to someone else. You ever been in that, those shoes? Right? Where somebody says one thing to you and something else to your friend. And you compare notes afterwards, you're like, well, that's not what they said to me. Well, that's not what they said to me. Right? So they're kind of two-faced in that kind of context where they say one thing to one person, something else to another. Or they may be double-tongued and they may say one thing and do another. Right? And they make a commitment and not follow through on it. And in either case, their tongues are forked. They are serpent-like. And what Paul is saying, for a deacon, they must be reliable in their speech. Their yes must be yes and their no must be no. Right? They must not be somebody who's crippled by a fear of man, but have a healthy, reverent fear for God. Right? You know what a fear of man typically results in? It results in you saying whatever you think the other person sitting across the table from you wants to hear. Because you're terrified of their rejection. You're terrified of their response. How are they going to look at you? How are they going to respond to you? So a deacon can't be crippled by fear of man and say one thing in one context and another in another. He says they can't be double-tongued. But also in verse 11, we're told that they must not be slanderers. Must not be malicious in their talk. What does it mean to slander somebody? It means to talk, it means to run them down with your tongue rather than build them up. So the deacons must be encouragers, not malicious in the way that they use their words. They must be sincere and consistent in their speech and reflecting the character of Christ himself. Because he, he never spoke with guile. Never spoke with malicious intent. He always spoke with the well-being of the other in mind, intending to build up, not to break. He was sincere in all his dealings with men, from telling them their desperate need of sin, of, 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 of himself because of their sin, and addressing their self-righteousness, to holding out the promise of eternal life. And everything that he said, he was sincere and consistent. Right? And so must deacons be. So here's a few questions. Does, a, does the deacon, the potential deacon, have a reputation for keeping his or her word? Do they follow through on the commitments that they make? Do they have a track record for completing assignments and tasks and keeping with their word? Do they honor that? Do they speak consistently to different parties? Is there a confidence that you have in your engagement and interaction with them that what the person says in one setting they will say in another? That what they say in public, they will say in private. What they say in private, they will say in public. It will be consistent across the board, right? That's why you need somebody who's not captivated with the fear of man. Does the deacon speak the truth in love? Or are they unwilling to wade into difficult situations with true words that would confront someone else? Even as they do so with compassion and tenderness and kindness. Are, are, this, are this person known for being, are they known for being a kind of equal, uh, fair broker? Do they already now stand in the gap and try to help mediate situations and bring people together rather than driving them apart with the way that they say things or what they say? So they must be consistent in speech. In addition, Paul says, they've got to be sober in body and in mind. Be sober in body and mind. In verse 8, Paul says that they should be individuals who are not addicted to much wine. Now listen, Paul does not issue a Nazarite vow for deacons, right? Go into the Old Testament, there was a Nazarite vow. Part of that vow means that no alcohol ever crossed your lips. That's not what he says here, right? He doesn't prohibit the consumption of alcohol, right? 
But he does say a person is disqualified. There's a pattern of dependence and drunkenness and abuse that becomes clear that they are depending upon a substance rather than the Spirit of God in their lives. They're disqualified from serving as a deacon. So to have a drink or two on occasion, have a glass of wine with your, with your spouse, to have a couple of beers on a Friday night, doesn't disqualify from somebody serving as a deacon. But listen, if your accountability group consists of Jim Beam and Jose Cuervo and Johnny Walker, right? Then you don't need to be serving as a deacon. Right? If you spend more time with them than with other people because there's a dependence issue in your life. And Paul says you shouldn't be serving as a deacon. Right? So does a potential deacon... Do they, do they drink alcohol? Again, not a disqualifier. If so, listen, let's be real clear on this. All right? There's a difference between having a few couple of beers and waking up on Saturday morning with hangover. Right? Where you got, you got to sleep off. There's a difference between those two things. Right? So do, if they do consume alcohol, have you observed them doing it in self-controlled ways? Or do they exhibit a weakness or sinfulness in this area? Are they dependent upon substances to make it through a day or to make it through a week with the stresses that are placed on them? Because remember, loads are going to be placed on their life. And if the way they deal with loads is by escaping to a bottle, that is not a healthy situation. Where do they look first when they're under pressure? The Bible or a bottle? The Holy Spirit or spirits in their cabinet? When they're offered alcohol in certain settings, are they able to abstain? Are they able to say no for the sake of those who are around them and their consciences, not, not wanting to, to wound the weaker brother or sister in those moments? Are they someone that you would say, we hold this person up as an example of what it looks like to consume in moderation with an eye towards those who may have issues with addiction? And they're sensitive to those things. So they're sober in body. But they're also sober in mind, Paul says. In verse 11, he says that their deacons must be sober-minded. Listen, to be sober-minded means this. It means that you're not irrational or intoxicated with the unbridled passions or commonplace cultural values. In other words, the things that the world affirms and celebrates and rejoices over are not you're not intoxicated by those things, right? They're, they're not just if, when it comes to alcohol or, or drug abuse, but you're not, they're not addictions in your life to cultural, commonplace, worldly values because if you have a deacon whose mind is intoxicated and they're infatuated with commonplace, worldly values, then they're going to conduct their life in a very worldly way and they're going to lead others towards the embrace of that kind of living as well. That's just reality. And so for somebody who's a prospective deacon, do they have other, maybe not an alcohol issue, but do they have other addictions in their life? Are they addicted to hobbies? Are they addicted to entertainment, right? Can they just, can they not put down the Netflix remote? Do they just keep clicking, right? Every time an episode's over. Is there an addiction there to entertainment? Is there an addiction to a particular kind of lifestyle? Right, in the way that they have to have certain things in their life or their life is not meaningful for them. Are they self-controlled, sober in mind and sober in body? 
In addition, Paul says, are they content and faithful? Are they content and faithful? He says in, in, in the text, he says, they're not greedy for dishonest gain, but they're faithful in all things. In all things. See, in Paul's context and ours, it meant that monetary greed was not the motivation for his ministry. Monetary greed was not the motivation for his ministry. And listen, this is vital in the life of a deacon, particularly somebody who's going to be handling benevolence cases in the life of the church. Somebody's going to be facilitating the fiscal needs of the church. That they not be somebody who's greedy for dishonest gain. Right? The congregation needs to know that their leaders see souls and not dollar signs whenever they look into their eyes. They need to know that. They need to trust that. They need to know that whenever they give generously and sacrificially and faithfully, that that money will be dispersed in ways that have been approved and apportioned. Right? They need to be able to trust that from their leaders. Now, the, the way the King James puts it is that deacons must not be greedy of filthy lucre. I think that may be the way we get the English word loot. Right? This. All right, to, to say greedy for dishonest gain sounds a little bit, ah, that's a little bit PC. But he says it's filthy loot. It comes from the manipulation of other people and the way that you engage in relationships with them. And to avoid this with deacons, it's particularly important, as we said, since they will have intimate access to the lives of many people in the congregation as they walk alongside of them in their time of need. They'll be called upon for help and assistance and if they walk into an environment looking to gain from the person that they're serving, Paul says you have a recipe for disaster in the life of the body. It's a terrible platform to give to someone who looks to exploit others for their own gain. And then in verse 11 it says, we're to be individuals who are faithful in all things, not someone who's flaky or flighty, and they can be depended upon and re they're reliable even in matters of finance personal finance church finance and so listen a few questions does the potential deacon exhibit godly generosity and self-denial or greed or greed when it comes to personal financial matters are they primarily known as generous givers or selfish hoarders of money do they appear to steward their resources in keeping with the priority of the kingdom or in keeping with their own desire for gain do they encourage generosity in the lives of others? Or do they foster selfishness in the way that they conduct their own financial dealings and encourage others with that as well? Do they demonstrate pastoral care and self-sacrifice when interacting with others in need? Are they willing to set their own interest aside to dive into the interest of others and the needs of others in sacrificial ways? Because deacons will be called upon to do so. And particularly for lay deacons who may be working a full-time job 40 to 50 hours a week, then stepping into, in the evenings, difficult conversations and into homes with people who are in need. Are they willing to set aside at times, not to the neglect of their family, we're going to see that in a little bit, but, but in, in, in ways that are appropriate to step into those needs in sacrificial and self-denying ways? Are they honest in their own financial dealings? What's their attitude towards wealth? How does that manifest in their life? Are they content and faithful? Paul doesn't stop there. Someone's like, I wish he would have. But he goes on. He says they must also be sound in doctrine. Sound in doctrine. In verse 9 it says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
You guys ever been to a restaurant before that you've never been to, right? Go to the first time, somebody gave you a recommendation and you walk into the restaurant and, you know, they, they seat you at a table and you're sitting there and they bring out this menu and the menu's got like five pages. You're just flipping through, like looking at all the things that you could order off the menu. Whenever the waiter walks up and gives you a glass of water and takes your drink or order and comes back and asks, what would you like for dinner? What would you like for lunch? What are some, one of the first things that many of us do? They're like, what's good here? Right? We've got all these options. What's good here? My friend recommended I come here. I'm here. Tell me what's good. What do you guys do back there that's really good when it gets right here? Right? Oftentimes we'll ask a waiter that. Here's why. Why do you ask a waiter that? Why do you ask your server that? Because you expect that the server knows the menu better than you do. You have an expectation that they know what they're producing in the kitchen much better than you do the first time that you walk into the restaurant. Maybe even the 10th time that you walk into the restaurant. That they know what they're serving you. And Paul says there's the same expectation for deacons. Now notice he doesn't give the qualification they've got to be able to teach. But he says they must hold to the mystery of the faith. To sound doctrine with a clear conscience. They've got to know what it is that they believe There are some theological footholds for deacons as they serve as practical servants, task-specific servants in the life of the church. So just because they're caring for practical needs doesn't mean they don't need to have doctrinal foundations. Theological moorings that would hold them in place. See, to keep hold of the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience is to grip, first of all, the gospel of Christ with full assent. The good news of Jesus. Right, the prospective deacon needs to have an embrace of faith in Christ, him or herself. They don't need to be unbelievers and go like, they're really good at what they do. But I know they're not a Christian yet, but they will be. So we'll make them a deacon. No. They have the hold of the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Right? So people, they need to know what it is that they are articulating. They must be able to know the deep truths of the faith. They must be able to articulate and explain the crucial points of gospel doctrine. It's a requirement for them. Right? Now I'm not saying they need to be able to cite every systematic theology ever written. Or explain all the finer points of every doctrine. But they must at least, at minimal, hold to the core gospel tenets of the faith. That God created everything good as a reflection of His glory. That our first parents, as they came into the world, chose to rebel against God because they wanted to run and rule their own lives. And as such, sin entered into the world. And rebellion against God has been something that we have all done from the time of our first parents' fall in the garden. So we are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. Because as we age we want to run and rule our own lives just like our first parents did but god had purposed from the foundations of the world to set in forth a plan set forth and in motion a plan to redeem a people from among all peoples of the earth and the sending of his son who would live as our example of what it looks like to live in submission to the father to live in obedience to the Father, to honor the Father in all that we say and in all that we do. He would live as our example and then he would die as our substitute because we could not do this. And he would die in our place. He would have his arms stretched, his back beaten, his hands pierced at the cross. 
And they would take his body and lay it in the grave. And on the third day, it would, be, it would not be there because he had risen. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And one day he shall return to claim all those who repent of sin, running and ruling their own life, embrace in faith Jesus' substitution for them. And then aim out of that, that conversion experience to follow his example and everything in the way that they speak and live. Like, can they articulate those basic gospel truths? If not, they probably don't need to be serving as a deacon. But do they hold to it with a clear conscience? In other words, does that doctrine shape not only their intellectual, the intellectual aspect of who they are, but the volitional one, how they live? Does it shape what they do? How they, orga- how they will organize and structure their ministries that God's given them leadership of as they work with people? Are they able to point them to Him in the way that they even organize and lead their ministry? So Paul says they've got to be sound in doctrine. And you would hope that they wouldn't just stop at the central tenets of the Christian faith, but they would want to grow in their understanding of what the Bible teaches about everything that it teaches. And they'd be constant students, opening the scriptures, personally, corporately. Now the final thing that Paul says here, the final thing Paul says here is that not only all these other things, but also they've got to care for their family. They've got to care for their family. In verse 12 he says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And I think even based on what Paul would say elsewhere, that the reason this is one of the requirements is because one of the ways to test whether or not a person will care for the family of God is to see how they care for their own. If they are neglectful toward their family, if they are just distant from their family, then they will be the same in the family of God. They will be the same amongst the church. They will neglect their responsibilities. They will not care in the way that God calls them to care for those who are in their midst. You see the way they treat their husbands and wives. You can, to some degree, know how they're going to treat the church. If you see how they treat their sons and daughters, you can see, to some degree, how they're going to treat the church. If they're not married, young men, young women you see how they treat their mothers and fathers and their siblings, you can see to some degree how they're going to treat the church. You've got to manage their own household well. This is the character sketch that Paul gives of those men and women who would serve as task-specific servants in the church. He said, because there's going to be a load placed on their life, then they need to be those who care for their family because you know how they care for the church. They need to be those who are sound in doctrine, who are able to articulate the truths of the gospel and grow in it. They need to be those who are content and faithful, those who are self-controlled and sober. And they need to be individuals who are consistent in speech and as such, demonstrating a dignified, honorable character to say, this is what it looks like to be a mature, growing believer. And then Paul says in verse 13, something very astonishing. Listen to what he says. He says, for those who serve well as deacons, 
gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul does not say those who occupy the office of deacon gain a good standing for themselves in the church. What does he say? Those who serve well as deacons. He's not talking about just merely those who occupy an office, but he's talking about those who embrace that office, those who embrace the responsibilities, the load of that office, those who are serving well. They're consistent in speech. They're sober in conduct and mind and body. They're faithful in all things. They're reliable and dependable. They follow through on their word. They keep their commitments. They're sound and growing in their understanding of the Christian faith. And they're caring for their family and caring for the church. Those who serve well as deacons, not just those who have been installed to occupy a position on a council or a board or fill a spot. He says those who serve well, they gain a good standing for themselves. Because all of us admire those who serve well, don't we? But he says they also gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I was thinking about that this morning. And I was thinking about my son, who's now 11 years old and playing organized baseball for the first time. If I were to be real honest with you, I was terrified for him. I was afraid that all their skill sets were going to be so far beyond where his was. But when we showed up at practice the first time, I realized that, yeah, there are a few kids who are well beyond his skill set, but many of them are still right there where he is and he's never played before. And so I was like a big sigh of relief, kind of one of those dad moments. He wasn't completely disheartened. But what I've seen in him is that he's exercised the drills that we've been working on and he's worked through, like we've thrown together and caught together and hit together and fielded together. As he continues to exercise those things, there is a growing confidence in him in his ability to do those things. In his ability to, to, to contribute to the team. In his ability to be a part of that organization. Listen, and the same is true with deacons. They grow in confidence in this faith as this faith that they believe and affirm and confess gets worked out in their life. There is a growing confidence that develops in them. That what I believe is true because I not only affirm it intellectually, but I see it working out relationally. I see it working out volitionally with my will. I see it working out practically in the way that I serve. I see these things being exercised in this area of service that God has tasked me with. So I have great confidence. And it's like this cycle that's feeding each other. See, some of us are so, we may lack assurance of our salvation. We may not have confidence in the faith and a part of that may be, and we may be bored with Christianity because we've just been sitting on the bench for so long. And see, a part of deacon work in the church is to say that the church, the ministry of the church is not reserved for paid professionals. But it's to be placed in the hands of the body to do the work. And a part of the reason some of us may be bored, part of the reason some of us may be unassured and lack confidence is because we've been sitting on the bench when God wants us to be in the game. Because as we exercise, as we practice those things he's gifted us to do, then what happens? We grow in confidence because we see it working itself out. My hope would be that there would not be a person in this room who would not aspire to this kind of service. And that we, 
would have to just keep making up positions for people to serve as deacons because many people are qualified. Their character is developing. And they want to be used in that way. So starting this weekend, we'll be taking nominations this weekend and for the next four weekends for deacons to serve in the life of this church. On this green forms in the back of the room at the kiosk back there, they look just like this. There is a little bit of an instructions. But then there's also uh, some categories of tasks that we believe we need deacons right now to be leveraged towards in the life of our church. A deacon of local missions and outreach, a deacon of member care and benevolence, a deacon of hospitality, of facilities, of women's ministry, and of men's ministry. There's brief descriptions of those on that green form back there. And what we're asking you as a church to do is to prayerfully consider who it is in this body that you believe is qualified to serve in these capacities and that God has gifted in ways that would enable them to flourish in these particular roles. And as you pray through that, here's what else we're asking you to do. Talk to them first. Right? Because we want them to be willing to serve if nominated. I told you last week, I don't want to call them in six weeks and go, hey, you were nominated for the deacon of hospitality. They're like, what? So pray through that. Have conversations with those in your life groups, with those on the ministry teams, even now that you serve on. Think about what it would look like for maybe you. Maybe you're the person somebody's going to come to and say, can I nominate you for this? Is there a willingness in you to serve? Is there a willingness in you to see the kind of character growth and development that might be needed in your life to move you towards being qualified to serve in the way Paul envisions? That's all I have to say about that. I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to sing together. Father, we thank you for your word that it does not leave us void of instruction for how the church, how your church, how your body is to be organized and led. And Father, I pray that we would take to heart the, the, these teachings about what deacons are and what qualifies a man or a woman to serve in those ways. God, that we as a church would prayerfully consider kinds of men and women who, who would serve well and faithfully in these areas we believe we need deacon attention given to at this time in our church. Father, would you mobilize this body? Would you mobilize brothers and sisters in this body to exercise their gifts in a way that supports the ministry of the Word, in a way that unifies by caring for the practical, physical, fiscal needs of the church. Father, we do not believe it's by mistake that you have led us to teach on this the last couple of weeks. And God, as we have, God, I pray that these words would settle into the hearts and minds of those who have heard. And that you would move in them and in us that we might organize well. 
We pray in Jesus' name.